Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing really well. Today on the show, we have Sue Hamilton and Shayna Plank. Uh, that is a mother and daughter who did live in North Fork, the, the trailer park in Moorhead that we talked about last week. We were able to get them. One of the organizers is actually a guy I know from the Rural Urban Exchange. So he, he got, in, got in contact with me and we got them on the show. The story that they shared with us was extremely personal. It was very revealing to me. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of the times you read stories like we read last week and, and you know, you, you feel like you have a, a grip on it. Um, but when you learn about all the personal impacts that a lot of the, the changes in the policies that get made have... Uh, it really opens your eyes in a different way. So I'm really excited to be able to share this with you guys. Uh, I, and I do think it you know, it reveals a, a depth of this whole issue that we hadn't really been able to talk about when you're just talking about the issue. So I, 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 I'm excited to share it. Yeah, I think it's a different kind of interview than we often do. But I think it's really important. And I think we might see Shayna Plank's name on a ballot one day. I mean, like the kids are all right, Robert. Yeah, yeah, I thought this yeah. was a, a really cool interview that we did. We should mention Shayna's 11 years old. Uh, and we told her that she was the youngest person that we'd ever interviewed. And she wanted to know like by how much and, and we weren't totally sure, but we think it's by at least 10 years. So yeah, uh, there you go. So that that's very exciting. But before we show that interview to you guys, we do have, you know, our normal updates. Um, we have the normal policing and protesting update from here in Louisville and around the state. Then we have a COVID update and we have quick hits, lots of different kinds of stories we kind of wanted to touch on. But the bigger stories will be the things that we normally talk about. So Jasmine, why don't you take it away and tell us about police, protesting, etc. for this week. We're going to start in Lexington today because there is an update about Lexington's um, no-knock warrants initiative. So we talked a few weeks ago about some faith leaders in Lexington calling for banning no-knocks and and other changes in Lexington. And since then, Lexington City Council took a unanimous committee vote to ban no-knock warrants. The mayor, Linda Gorton, said that she thinks that they have a good system in place already and that she supports limited use of no-knocks. Lexington's police chief said that only four no-knock warrants have been executed in the last five years. I don't know. So if they're that rare, like, why don't you just get rid of them? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Originally, the Lexington ordinance said after knocking, a police officer must wait 15 seconds or a reasonable amount of time before entering. They took out the 15-second provision and left the standard as reasonable amount of time. I think that reasonable amount of time leaves too much room for abuse, perhaps. And I think it, at least one council member in the Herald Leader article said that he that they wanted the language to be added back in before they took a full council vote. So Lexington could become the second city in Kentucky to ban no-knock warrants. It, does, it doesn't seem that they really have the full support of the mayor, but... You know, we'll see what happens. I think they're going to take a full council vote in June. Yeah. So it seems like that this, like you mentioned, it had the unanimous support of the committee that voted on it originally. But it wasn't until after that vote that the mayor kind of came out and said she didn't necessarily want this bill. So it will be interesting Mm -hmm. to me to see, well, if this how far this derails the movement. 
Um, right. So I think at best it'll be, you know, a vo- it won't be unanimous like it might have been before. Uh, hopefully it passes. I don't, and I'm not totally sure what the, the structure is in Lexington, whether M- Mayor Gorton could veto it if she wanted to and if they would have to override it or how that would work. But, you know, they are making progress and it seems like that they're continuing to make progress in the face of some opposition. So that's, that's good. I think that that's good that, that the LFUCG council is showing a little bit of spine about this issue that's so important to the whole state. Yeah. Next up, Daniel Cameron announced a search warrant task force eight months ago, and it hasn't met yet. <laughs> so, and this um, was, yeah, this was one that had like very specific members too. Like it was like this is not just like some amorphous group of you know people that haven't been appointed. This is a group that has a name and people on it, right? Well, the people on it had not been announced until pretty recently, so we knew like people from like different agencies that would make up the board, but I don't think we knew exactly who all would be on it. Um, But Jacob Ryan of the Kentucky center for investigative reporting reported on this. He's been doing really a whole series on search warrants over the last year. And shortly after his article was published, I think it was like maybe minutes (laughs) actually uh, Cameron announced the members of the task force. Yeah. So some of the members Judge Charlie Cunningham of Jefferson Circuit Court. And I wanted to mention him specifically because today the Courier Journal reported that he was reprimanded for his op-ed about search warrants um, back in 2020. So we did talk about this on the podcast, but it's been a little while. Um, Attorney Ted Schaus, who was also on the show, wrote an op-ed for the Courier Journal about the search warrant procedures and how they could be more transparent. And Judge Cunningham wrote a response that basically um, defended Judge Shaw, who signed the search warrant in the Breonna Taylor case, and also like took some shots at Ted Shouse. I thought it, I thought it was in really poor taste, especially for a judge. And he actually got reprimanded and we just found out about it today. And he's on the search warrant task force. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I remember you talking I, about that. And that's a little troubling for sure. Yeah, I felt like that was of note. Um, other members include Whitney Westerfield and Ed Massey. Of course, Whitney Westerfield is a state senator and Ed Massey is representative. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Whitney rem- Westerfield it is, uh, I would say, a little bit more moderate on some of these policing issues than a lot of other people. Um, that's yeah, uh, he, he he definitely acknowledges that there are racial disparities in like the judicial system. And, and I think that Ed Massey believes that as well. Ed Massey is kind of the one who got um, the juvenile transfer bill across the finish line after the Senate bill wasn't going to make it. Other members include David Nicholson, who is the clerk in Jefferson County. Damon Preston, who is the state public advocate, and Ramon McGee, who is a black attorney in Louisville and a member of the NAACP. Those are some of the members who are on the search warrant task force. And six of the members told the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting that they have received little guidance from the AG and that they don't even know the specific aim of the task force and that it's been pretty disappointing to like not meet or not know what's going on. My my favorite thing about this story, and yeah, uh, Jake Ryan does great work over at the KYCIR. 
whenever he like writes about something that like I support, it makes me really nervous and it does like make me feel bad about it often because he's a good writer and <laughs> does a good job. Uh, but uh, he asked uh, Daniel Cameron's office, you know, why hasn't this task force met? And, you know, it was very clear. I could hear the conversation in my head, even though he's just writing about it. Like his spokesperson, Daniel Cameron's spokesperson is like, well, we just kind of wanted to wait for the legislative session to end. You know, we didn't want to like step on the feet of that. And like the next line that Jake Ryan writes is like, it was formed four months before the, the session started. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's like, there, that's a dumb excuse. You definitely could have been meeting ahead of that all the way through it. Like that's it. Yeah. So I thought very clearly that. They just haven't done any work because I guess they didn't think anybody was going to call them out. So good for Jake Ryan for actually doing it. Yeah. So this week was my like annual public defenders conference. And we actually gave Jacob Ryan an award for his search warrant reporting. Um, but we also gave awards to Whitney Westerfield and Ed Massey for passing the juvenile transfer, the banning the automatic juvenile transfers. So yeah, a lot of the, the people on the search warrant task force uh, we awarded <laughs> this, <laughs> this year, <laughs> and also the the person reporting on them. <laughs> Coming back to Louisville, Chief Erica Shields said that Derby barricades in West Louisville were premature, and that there was a miscommunication with Public Works. So we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago that barricades were put up near the Kroger in the West end and Kroger had to close at five o'clock PM. And that didn't happen for any other Kroger in the city. And a lot of people have wanted to know why she said that they planned to put them up at 7 PM in lieu of police presence. So basically they, she said we were going to have the barricades because we weren't going to have officers on the ground there. So that's why we were going to do it. Um, but she said that she didn't realize that that meant Kroger would have to close at five o'clock. I don't know. So you'd think if like you're the person tasked with making difficult decisions that you would consider the ramifications of them. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I mean, it clearly is a miscommunication. I mean, if you take her out of word, it was a miscommunication. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't know Erica Shields from whatever mm-hmm. I know her rep reputation or whatever that is bad you should have done better communication i do think you know maybe this represents like owning up to it and i do think it's good because she had to uh, you know the the, this was in front of metro council right where she talked about this yes so it was good that the metro council made her answer these questions and admit that this was a miscommunication because i think having consequences for behavior like this which clearly is disruptive and bad like that means you're going to, you know, that makes people want to do better in the future. So, you know, letting things slide is something that should not happen anymore. Um, so hopefully, you know, Erica Shields will do a better job next time she's confronted with something like this. But it is a little disappointing um, that it happened in the first place. Yeah. I don't even think that the part that I just talked about was the miscommunication because she did say they planned on putting them at 7 p.m. And that meant that Kroger had to close at five o'clock to like let employees leave and things like that. The miscommunication was that public works put them up too early. So there were a lot of different problems with it. And Metro council members also expressed frustration that they weren't ever informed about the plan. So, you know, if you're a council person who who's affected by that, you know, they wish that they had, 
had known about it and they could talk about how it might affect the grocery store and right. things like that. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's that's right. I think getting Metro Council as the, the advocates for the people that live in these districts like looped into the decisions around policing is a good idea because these are elected officials that are responsive to the people that live there. And those people should be informed of the decisions about policing in those communities. Uh, and I think that this is a very good use of the Metro Council's oversight capacity because, yes, we want to call you to the carpet when you impact our citizens in ways that we don't appreciate um, so that you don't do it again. So hopefully, you know, hopefully they do better next time. You know, uh, I've thought that for years now, though. So that's uh, that's that. Yeah, it would at least allow someone to say, like, hey, that's where our only grocery store is. Or, you know, so there's that. Um Next up, Sergeant Adam Myers, PSU investigation, that's the Professional Standards Unit, uh, revealed that officers should not have filed a single shot during the raid at Brianna Taylor's apartment and found that even Sergeant Mattingly, who was the officer that was shot in the leg, um, violated department policies. I don't think that that is surprising to anyone. I guess maybe we didn't know that it was actually in the PSU report and the Courier Journal obtained that this week. The thing that was surprising to me is that Chief Gentry at the time, you know, we know that she kind of, you know, she fired most of the officers, but Mattingly didn't get fired. And and I Mm -hmm. think, you know, all of this stuff is probably things I knew independent of each other, but like Chief Gentry defied, the PSU report and kept writing me on was the sentence that like stood out to me as something yeah, that seemed a little different. That's what I was about to say. What we didn't know is that Yvette Gentry like reversed the recommendations, mm-hmm. um, not just as to Sergeant Mattingly who was cleared, but also as to Lieutenant Hoover, who was the ranking officer on scene that was published by the courier journal last week. And it has kind of got a little bit of national press, but Our local newspaper had it first. As usual. (laughs) The Courier Journal is also doing a series on guns in Louisville. Um, It's several different parts, and it discusses how easy it is for teens to access guns, private gun sales, and how they don't require a background check. And then also our auction laws, which or basically how guns get put back onto the street through police auctions when they're confiscated. Um, And it was really interesting. Like I learned that the auction law got passed because some rural police departments like needed resources to get weapons. And so this auction law was proposed where they auction off confiscated guns. And then like they, department started seeing the effects of it and that all these guns were getting put back on the streets. And so police department started like trying to hoard them themselves and not auction them off. And then there was like a 90 day rule put in place where they had 90 days to turn them over to the state for auction. So the series is really good. It's worth reading. So I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew about it. Yeah, absolutely. I've been really looking forward to it. The first part came out today, which is Wednesday, I believe. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm glad to hear you say it's good. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to note was about judicial vacancies. So the Courier Journal put out an article today about judges that are 
leaving all at once in Louisville, it seems. So Louisville's Supreme Court seat is going to be open, as well as basically almost all of the Jefferson Circuit Court seats. There are 13 Circuit Court judges. These are the judges who make decisions about people going to prison, whether they'll be released, civil disputes of $5,000 or more. And we may have very little experience on the bench very soon. All of these seats are up for election in 2022. And this article mentions, I think maybe all, but like five judges. And I've even heard that some of those seats might be open as well. So now's the time to start thinking um, if you're an attorney or you know attorneys who would be good at being a judge, start convincing them to run (laughs) because we're going to have a lot of open seats in Jefferson County and we want good experienced attorneys in those seats. Yeah, I can think of like three people off the top of my head who have lost judicial races that I wish had won. So uh, I'll talk. I'll I'll be sending them messages, Jasmine. Thanks for letting me know about this. Yeah, and this this sounds a little different than policing, but you know I think it's really important. You know, a circuit court judge signed the search warrant that eventually led to Breonna Taylor's death. They make very important and life changing decisions, and we're going to be getting a lot of new ones. So we need to start considering who we want in those positions well in the supreme court seat too this is that's a big deal that's a huge deal (laughs) lizbeth hughes was put in place by uh ernie fletcher i believe Mm -hmm. so you know the louisville supreme court seat has been um you know put in place by a republican governor uh obviously the court was significantly less politicized back in those days and the guy who came before her you know um was you know uh i think he died in office but the anyways the this is a chance, you know, like they tried to make uh, a lot of the other Supreme Court case or uh, seats more political in Western Kentucky, for example. I wonder if that will happen in the other direction here in the Louisville seat where it will turn into a little bit more of a political race. Yeah, well, the article from the Courier Journal confirms that one of the circuit court judges, Judge Bissig, plans on running for that seat. And another one of the circuit court judges plans on running for a court of appeals seat that it may come open. Um, So at least two of the ones leaving are are seeking those higher seats. I don't know if anyone will run against Judge Bissig. I don't know if there will be like a a constitutional conservative type of (laughs) candidate that tries to run for it or not. I would think it might be the other direction, Jasmine, and I would think it would be likely. um, yeah, like a more progressive type person who's like making mm-hmm. sure that Louisville Supreme Court seat delivers progressive whatever. Could be both sides though, and it'll be very interesting to see how that race develops. So one to watch for definitely. Twenty twenty two is going to be very crowded at, for a midterm. Uh, a lot of stuff to watch. So, all right. Well, Jasmine, thanks for that update on policing and judges and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about COVID as usual. So COVID cases actually went down last week, meaning that the direction in the last seven weeks was down, up, down, up, down, up, and now back down. Uh, Jasmine, that's a plateau, if you believe it. That sounds like a plateau. Um, All right, so there are now just four red counties, and they're all in eastern Kentucky. It's Powell, Montgomery, Bath, and Lewis. Again, very small counties uh, in terms of population, so that means that, you know, as you're judging population for 100,000 if like five people from one family infect you know 
eight other families or whatever. It doesn't have to be a large outbreak before it really shoots up to 25 people per 100,000. So, you know, that, that could be what's going on there. There's now fewer than 50 Orange counties, and both Jefferson and Fayette are closing in on that yellow status. Louisville actually saw 666 cases last week. Man, I really wish we'd have had like one fewer or one more. Mm, yeah. yeah. But, oh, well. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty significant decrease, though, after a large increase last week. So that, I think, also portends a plateau for Louisville, meaning that we're probably going to live on that edge of that yellow and orange until more people get vaccinated. So I kind of feel like we may be yellow one week and orange the next. So that's that's kind of where we're going to be at. Lexington saw an increase about a month ago that persisted for a few weeks. If you've been listening every week, you kind of know that that's been something I've been tracking. But this week, Fayette County saw a drop to 196, which is the first week that they've had fewer than 200 cases since before last summer. So I get these numbers from the Herald Leaders website, and they go all the way back to like June of 2020. And there is no week where Lexington has had fewer than 200 cases since before then. And of course, that was like right when Students were starting to come in for UK, so that was uh, a rise for them last year anyway. So, yeah, that's good for Lexington. Louisville and Lexington both are kind of moving. Louisville's in a plateau. Lexington went down, uh, but they're definitely headed into that yellow zone hopefully soon. Deaths are down to about eight per week, which is a lot lower than in the past. And, and another thing is that Louisville only saw one death last week, which is very good. You know, obviously, we'd like to see our first week with zero hopefully that happens soon but you know i think we've had two weeks in the past four that have had one death so you know the deaths are of course the major thing you want to avoid uh and it looks like that those are certainly going in the right direction in the past week about forty-two thousand kentuckians received their first shot of the covid19 vaccine uh it's really hard to compare that to last week's number because last week is the week that we switched from using the state system to the federal system but 42,000 is a lot lower than the 60,000 who received it two weeks ago, and that is a lot lower than a lot of the weeks that came before it. You know, I think we were over 100,000 not too long ago, so we're about well, we're less than half of a lot of the numbers that we had been seeing. In Louisville, vaccine usage has been plummeting. You know, we've talked about that. I, I question the number that dropped so low, but they've kept it there. Uh, but actually, I think Louisville has hit the bottom and has come back up. So two weeks ago, the number was 8,600 people that got a vaccine in Louisville. Now we've had 9,200 uh, in, the, in the last week. So, so we went up last week versus two weeks ago. But one thing to mention is that, you know, that number was almost 30,000 just four weeks ago. So we're still seeing a very significant drawdown. So, Jasmine, what do you think about that? So we've gone up slightly after being very high are, are you feeling like that's good news or is it still bad news that we're just so much lower than where we were i don't know i guess it seems kind of neutral to me like people are still getting it but it's still tapering off yeah i'll, t- I'll tell you what i think we talked a little bit last week about strategy having to shift I think that there was obviously like a ton of pent up demand, people desperate for that vaccine, and they got it as soon as they could. And now we talked about how they shut down Luvax and they shut down these large, like, and not like just get them through as fast as possible. And they're having to switch tactics to get out into the community and convince people to actually get the shot. And I think that this is kind of that paying dividends. Like, they're clearly like doing better than they were last week because maybe they've hit on some strategies that have worked and they've been actually able to vaccinate more people than they were the week before. So I think. While I wish people were smart and got their vaccine, uh, you know, I think that Louisville Public Health is doing really heroic work in trying to get out into the community and get people these vaccines. So there you go. 
Um, one other piece of information is that Pfizer has now been approved for use in children as young as 12. So I expect the numbers to increase pretty substantially in the next few weeks as there is a lot of pent-up demand for 12 to 15-year-olds as well. Uh, a, lot of kids with, or a lot of people with children that really w- wanted to get their kids vaccinated. Jasmine, my neighbors, actually, I don't even know if their shots are available yet. And they took the, the neighbor kid to see if they could get that Pfizer today after they got the, after that was approved. Uh, after that was approved just a couple days ago. So I'll, I'll, I'll report back if he was successful. I'm sure he'll get it at some point this week. But I think that that's probably going to be the case for a lot of parents who were very eager to get the vaccine themselves mm-hmm. with their children who are in that three-year age range. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of families have still been like completely social distancing, getting takeout, like waiting for their children to be able to be vaccinated at least the ones that have like you know been smart about things this whole time. We're just hoping that uh, the antibodies go through the breast milk. We read a thing about how that's a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. So you know that's 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 what we're banking on. <laughs> I think mostly. All right. Uh, and last thing, the Kentucky Lottery is giving away free tickets to people who get their first vaccine shot in the next few weeks. So Jasmine, if you haven't got your shot yet, I know you have, but tell your friends who haven't. They could become a millionaire if they just get their COVID vaccine through the Kentucky lottery. Did you see about this promotion? <laughs> yes. What'd you think? Why not? Like, <laughs> Why not? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, they, I, I've heard they gave away beer in New Jersey and they gave away, uh, I don't know. They've been giving away all kinds of different things all over the place. Uh, the lottery tickets though, that's a new one. That's a Kentucky original right there. So from a national standpoint, cases have been cut almost in half over the past month. There was about 70,000 in mid-April, and now there's about uh, 40,000 now, uh, and here we are in mid-May. You know, we were worried about that fourth wave in the spring. It doesn't look like it ever really materialized. And the hotspots across the country haven't really changed. You still got Michigan, Colorado, and states in the Northeast that are among the most COVID-ridden, but the rate of infection in those areas is a lot lower than in previous weeks. Michigan is down to about 30 cases per 100,000, which means they're still technically in the red zone, more than 25. Uh, But they were up to 78 in April, which was like the same level that Kentucky was experiencing in uh, January and February. So they were at that level just recently. So, you know, Michigan just got hit really randomly, really hard, uh, and nowhere else really saw anything quite like that. So that's a really tragic thing for the folks up there in Michigan. All right, Governor Bashir announced that uh, that a few uh, restrictions were going to be loosened this week, in, including removing the curfew for bars and restaurants and the return of bar seating. Uh, that will happen on May the 28th. Jasmine, Louisville's last call is way too late. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, I, I, and I just mean that because sometimes people want to stay out and I want to go home. Uh, that's mostly <laughs> the reason. I'm too old to do any of that anymore. I don't go out anymore, even before the pandemic, but... Uh, I just remember people being like, why go home? Because I'm tired and it's three in the morning. Uh, so Yeah. I came of age in Lexington where bars close at 2.30. And I think you did also. Yeah. And when I came home to visit like one Thanksgiving weekend or something, I went out with some friends here and stayed out till 4 a.m. And I was like, this is crazy. Why did... Yeah, I like Lexington's rules better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I don't really know how that translates to bar ownerships or whatever, but just, you know, from a social standpoint, I like being like, oh, man, it's closed. We got to go home. So, yep. That, that's our speed, if you couldn't have guessed that from the fact that we have a politics podcast. Uh, 
<laughs> All right, that's it for this. Get your shot. If you have got it, congrats. Another thing that we learned is that since February, 99% of people who have received the COVID diagnosis have been unvaccinated. So basically, nobody who got a vaccine has gotten sick. Uh, so that's pretty impressive. Um, and yeah, uh, that's the best way to protect yourself. Be smart. Wear your mask. Uh, be safe, but get the shot. That's the main thing that will keep everybody safe, and it's available to everybody. So just do it. All right, those are the two things that we talk about on a normal basis, but we do have several quick hits that we kind of wanted to go through that are about lots of other things. So one of the things, Jasmine, I wanted to talk about is this report in the Herald-Leader that I saw that had new reporting about overpayments to dead people who are on workers' compensation. So apparently people are receiving bills to pay back these overpayments up to like $50,000, which was one of the stories in the report. Hopefully this reporting is going to increase pressure on the state to waive these payments. I mean... If somebody that you love, who you depended on for income, who'd been receiving workers' compensation because they'd been injured on the job, dies, that's very tragic and very, you know, heart-wrenching and also very, like, precarious as a situation for you, uh, probably the first thing on your mind is not to call the state and remind them to cut off your benefits. So I think that the state, it's incumbent upon them to actually do the work to actually, you know, make sure that the <laughs> the money gets cut off if it needs to. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's probably a good idea to provide a little softer landing for these folks who may be receiving some sort of payment uh, and having somebody pass away and definitely not billing them $50,000 uh, for receiving overpayments. I think that's really, really bad. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, anyways, I hope uh, I hope that the state comes to their senses about that one. Jasmine, the JCPS school board is looking at adding students to the board as ex-officio members. I think that's a great idea. Um, these students wouldn't be allowed to join closed sessions and can't vote as ex-officio members. Uh, I think that's probably okay because they're also unelected. But I do think it's great to get students involved in the policymaking process. Um, you know, hear, hearing from people that policies impact is an important thing. We talked about that uh, lots of in this episode, and you'll hear it even more in the interview we do later. So I think having a student on the JCPS school board is a good idea. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Very good. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't have anything to add. Like, it's obviously very important as listeners are going to hear in our interview today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Lexington's LFUCG Council voted to ban conversion therapy. They are joining Louisville and Covington as cities inside of Kentucky to make this ban. So it, as you're aware, uh, if you've listened to the show, the Fairness Movement, which is a different LGBTQ issue, they found some success at pushing cities to enact laws which the state would not. And it looks like the banned conversion therapy movement is making the same push. Um, what Jasmine, what do you think about this as a strategy? Obviously, it's been working for fairness. And we heard Chris Hartman talk to us about on our show about he thinks that the movement to fairness is inevitable and will happen someday soon. Uh, I wonder if he feels the same way about banned conversion therapy. What do you think about using the strategy for, for banned conversion therapy in addition to fairness? Um, I mean, I think it's a really good strategy because it became clear early in this legislative session that that bill probably wasn't going to move and it didn't. But there are places that still have conversion therapy. So if we can get ordinances to prevent that, I think that's good. And it helps you like build this movement to get it to make it happen statewide eventually. Yeah, I think that that's really been something I've noticed about fairness is it stays in the news uh, because of these mm -hmm. places that are banning it uh, or and fairness is in 
case, enacting fairness and ban conversion therapy for banning it. So, yeah, yeah, hopefully, you know, there's I think they're up to like 19 or 20 cities across the Kentucky that have a fairness ordinance. Uh, I don't see any reason why we couldn't get those same 19 or 20 to ban conversion therapy. Uh, obviously, that's a really, really bad thing to have go on. It's like basically torture. So let's not do it. Um, and let's get that bill passed on the statewide level as well. All right, Jasmine, two community centers in Louisville reopened for the first time since the COVID crisis this week, and now only one center remains closed, the one that's closest to me. And that's really only due to a lack of staff, apparently. It would open uh, under COVID, the same COVID protocols if they had enough people to open. Um, we talked extremely briefly last week about hun- uh, funding for non-home and non-school community spaces helps to reduce violence in cities. Obviously, that's a very, very intricate issue with lots of different pieces the guns piece is probably something else you should read in addition to uh listening to this about community centers um but these community centers in addition to being those spaces away from home and school for children are also very important for seniors and other people to access metro services so it's really good i think that these things are reopening uh covid took a lot from us a lot of people died a lot of people got sick and their lives will never be the same again but a lot of people just couldn't access services that they could have normally because they don't have you know, access to technology and they could, couldn't access them in the community centers. And that's just an ancillary thing that it sucks to think about. And I'm just glad it's back. So there's that. You ever go to your community center, mm-hmm. Jasmine? No, and I've never been to my community center, but I, I go to the library all the time and I feel like it kind of falls under that same category. <laughs> It absolutely does. Yeah, the library is another good one. And those are open, too. So, you know, those are open, too. Go to the library. Uh, that's right, right? Yeah, they're not, like, fully open, but they, they have computer access and, like, grab-and-go book pickup and stuff now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do. I, I got stripped up in the middle of the pandemic trying to check out a book there, so hopefully it's easier than it was back then. All right. Uh, all right. A few weeks ago, we talked about Mayor Fisher's budget. The Metro Council is about to have its say. Hearings begin this evening at 7. So you probably, you're definitely listening to this after that happened. Uh, but you can watch them on Metro TV and on Facebook, and they will be going on for a while. So, you know, go back and listen to the episode that we talked about Mayor Fisher's budget and the things that we liked and didn't like in there, and uh, hear what the council has to say about them. Um, that's coming up now. All right. That's it for this week. Let's get to our interview with Sue Hamilton and Shayna Plank. Sue Hamilton is a single mother of two bright girls, Faith and Shayna Plank. She and her family have been displaced due to a pending development project in Moorhead, Kentucky. Sue is a hard worker and punches the clock every day to provide for her and her girls, and she can always be counted on to support her neighbors. She's active in the Justice for Norfolk campaign and is always there to help lead the group in song during meetings and rallies. She and her family have been saddled with financial hardships due to the actions of the rich and powerful, and her previous home in the trailer park was paid for and only cost $125 a month for lot rent. Now she's had to downsize to an apartment that costs $950 per month. We also have Shayna Plank, who is Sue's daughter and just turned 11 years old. She enjoys spending time playing with other kids, and she lived in the North Fork trailer park with her mom and older sister and enjoys enjoyed riding her bike in the neighborhood. She's also active in the Justice for North Fork campaign, and she participates fully shoulder-to-shoulder with the adults. Shana takes the bullhorn at rallies and leads the group through chants at meetings more than anybody else. She's proud to make protest signs and talk about 
building power for everyday Kentuckians. And for her birthday, she was surprised to receive her very own bullhorn. So Sue and Shana, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. All right. We are very thrilled to have you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. So just to get it started off, uh, I mean, I would like to just hear the story about, uh, you know, how you guys learned about this, what was all happening, how you learned that you were going to be displaced, and kind of what was your reaction when, when you learned that this was happening? We learned about the park being sold on, I think it was February the 26th. The owner actually called me. I had never talked to the lady or ever seen her in the six years that I lived there. She called and said that the who she was, Joanne Fraley, and that she was letting us know that the trailer park had been sold and that we would receive a letter telling us that we had to be moved by April the 30th. Uh, I did receive the letter on March the 5th. We had heard about the trailer park possibly going to be sold around in September. So we called our park manager and his name is Tony Lewis. And he said, no, that's not happening. So, you know, we're thinking that nah, just a rumor, no big deal. And then in December, we hear this again. And when I called Tony, he did say that they were looking at selling it. And uh, we would know by the end of December. Well, the deal went, did not go through. And so we didn't hear any more until the end of February, which told us that it now had been sold. And we had heard, apparently through the city, <laughs> that they had been making plans for two years. But no one at the trailer park was ever contacted and said, hey, we're looking at selling the trailer park. So, yes, we were truly shocked and did not know what we were going to do, to be honest. Shana, how did, how did your mom talk to you about this? When did you learn about it? And what was your reaction when you learned yeah. that you move? Well, she got the letter on, I think, March 5th. Yes. Yeah. And like, because also my sister's birthday is in March, so. Yeah, some Because <laughs> actually, the move, it's kind of like affected me in my learning because I had to go virtual since it's not in the same district as the school I was going to. So, because I didn't want to have to switch schools and then switch again, because I'm in fifth grade, I'm almost in middle school. So, I'm not as good as learning virtual as in, I am in person. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's there's a lot of things that make it hard in schools. Absolutely going to be one of the biggest for sure. So, you know, how long had you guys lived in the park? I think you said you said six, six years, years that you've been there. Yeah, uh, I mean, so that's that that's a pretty pretty long time to have lived somewhere uh, just to have it kind of disappear at so so quickly like that. That's I'm sure that that would be really tough. I mean, we knew a lot of people. We I had think. good neighbors. We had I had yeah. good neighbors. I worked in an office for 27 years. And when the pandemic and everything hit, we downsized. So fortunately for me, in some ways, I was able to go to the floor in the factory. So I still had a job, but I lost $2 an hour on my job at the time. I also had to go to night shift. I'm 57 years old. 
And to go to night shift after that long at that age, it's, it's rough. Especially but then also, yeah. it left the burden of my oldest daughter, who's 17, to stay with her at night. So those neighbors that I had were incredible. Yeah, because Mindy, she lived next door to us. And like during the day when mom was trying to sleep, if somebody stepped on the porch, no, like she like she went over there and like just told them that mom was trying to sleep. She was very thoughtful when she wanted to do something outside. When she knew I was working night shift, she would come and see it, making sure because I work weekends sometimes too. Mm-hmm. So she was very good at keeping, you know, keeping people from making noise and letting me be able to get my sleep. And they always watched out for my girls anytime, even when I was at home, if they wanted to go ride their bikes, you didn't feel any worry that they were going to be okay while they were riding and enjoying themselves. Where we've moved, there is no yard. There's no place for me to grow my flowers. I used to do the little raised gardens, put out raised tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. I have none of that. There is absolutely nothing but a small little square. That's really hard. Actually, there is like that one salon part, but we have to share it with the other neighbors. And for like me, because I don't have anybody to play with since Face always at work. She wouldn't play with me even if she wasn't at work. (laughs) Yeah, older sisters are like that sometimes. Uh, And I don't have any outdoor toys. Yeah. Yeah. My oldest one, she works in the evenings, mm-hmm. so that's why she's not here. Yeah, and, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that story because I do think a lot of the times when we read about these types of things, you know, you, you understand that sometimes people have to move, and that's going to be a big inconvenience, and people have to change schools and everything, and, and that's just, a, I, I mean, I appreciate that because that's a very personal story about things that you lose, and things like flowers and plants and, and the ability to have a yard and the ability to have kids to play with, that's like... That's an important part of, of a community, and uh, it, it's a shame that that, that that got taken away from you guys, uh, and, and it's a real tragedy, really. For me, I know it sounds kind of corny, but I had a 12 by 16 deck. I kept it decorated, but that was my me time to be able to regroup, go out in the mornings when they were still asleep or in Sometimes the Sometimes I was awake. And have my coffee. That was my me time. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like it sounds like you need, it sounds like you, you need your me time because this you know you got yeah. it sounds like you got some yeah, also, <laughs> no because she sold the trailer for thirty five hundred but actually if I remember correctly thirty five hundred is how much we pay to get our porch built <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it was yeah. wow it's just turned us upside down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With kids, I really do. But I mean, I know stuff that I found out from my oldest one that I just didn't realize how much it affected her. It it affected everybody in that trailer park. It's just sad. It it is very sad. It is. I mean, we're yeah. That's very sad. The things that you've lost, and I mean, that's that's a that's a huge tragedy. And and it sounds like it's a struggle moving forward. So tell us a little bit about what it's been like. You know, you, you talked a little bit about the place that you are now. Is what does the next little bit look like here for you guys? Like, how is the search gone, and 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 where do you think, where do you hope to end up next? Well, my dream was this past year, back in the summer, I decided I was putting money back 
in hopes of next year buying us a home. And so that's gone. There's mm-hmm. no money left at all. The way it is right now, the 3500 that I got for the trailer, when I calculate everything I got, I had to save that back because that will cover my groceries. But what happens next year, I have no clue. If I can't find something cheaper, and we're living in a college town, this is the cheapest you get for a two-bedroom, one-bath. We had a three-bedroom, two-bath trailer. And so we downsized. We also had to pick up a storage building that's $75 a month. And it's not a lot to some people, but when you're scraping by, that $75 is huge. And I honestly don't know, and unless I end up having to move out of the county, relocate her for school and my daughter, but I can't do that because she's going to be a senior this year. And I won't do that to her. She has went through school all this year, and I can't do it to her. She does great here. She's an excellent student and very intelligent. Her teachers speak very highly of her, and her working as many hours as she can. I mean, it's amazing. I don't even know how she does it herself. I don't. Keep her grades up, go to school, you know, and help the little one with her homework and stuff when she can, and then work. I mean, it's incredible to see a 17-year-old doing that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with with all you all have going on, you have still been really active in this movement and going to rallies and things like that. So I'd like to hear from each of you, like, what do you hope to accomplish through the Justice for Norfolk? I had to do this. I have never done anything like that in my life. Never have I ever participated in anything like this. But when I see my neighbors who were facing homelessness with no way to maybe even move their trailers because they were a lot older than what I had, and some of them are older, they're senior citizens, they people, mm-hmm. children. There's a girl with three children there facing homelessness. You've got to stand up and be a human being and fight for these people. One thing I want to see, if nothing comes out in monetary, and I think we do deserve to be compensated for this, but I would like to see a movement for Kentucky to go to Frankfurt and be making sure that all mobile home parks have a rule and a policy that will protect them, that they cannot be evicted like this. At least six months or a year notice when you're going to sell your mobile home park. Give these people time that we never got. That's the one thing I will push for. And if people want to go to Frankfurt, I will go with them to let them hear my story. No one should have to face this like this. Nobody. Actually, I think that what we want to achieve is, like, more time for everybody. Because, I mean, time, because it gives them time to, like, a little save back if they had, like, a couple months. They wouldn't be able to save back that much, but just, like, have enough, maybe, to move their trailer or something. Because how we're doing GoFundMes. It sounds like, you know, as if like the pandemic wasn't enough. Um, you've had other things in life going on. And so 
adding having to leave your home, I can't imagine like how difficult adding that to all of the other life stresses you've been going through would be. Um, we've talked a little bit about like recouping money to move and things like that. So the property owner allegedly was offering residents a thousand dollars. Have people been able to actually get any of that money? And that's not the deal. Okay. It was, she would offer a thousand dollars if you were two trailer movers. The people themselves got nothing from her. Okay. But the other deal was if you were moving your trailer and moving it to another place and you were going to live in it, then the movers got the thousand dollars. But in my case, where I had to sell my trailer, the people who bought the trailer and moved it, they did not get a thousand dollars to the movers. It only went if you were able to move your trailer and were able and were going to live in it yourself. If not, the thousand dollars did not apply. Nobody physically got a thousand dollars to their self. No, and also the no. money that was donated to Frontier Housing, I don't think any resident has seen a dime of that. There was a go there was a fund in a to Frontier Housing. Churches actually donated money as well to the Frontier Housing. But there was so much red tape, you, you they just did not distribute it to the people that was from North Fork Trail Park. You had to fill out a big application and go through a bunch of stuff. And in my case, because I make decent amount of money, I do. Not enough. I'm just kind of in the low, the bottom of being poor, I guess what most people consider. But it's enough to make it on a normal lifestyle. You don't get a lot of extra, but you at least we can make it and be still comfortable enough. But only the people who basically really didn't make hardly any money were the ones who got the benefit which is great because they did need the help. But when you don't account and just say, hey, these people need this money, why are we going through applications and all this process? It was donated money. It didn't come from you. It came from donated people. It should have went to all, all that money should have went to the trailer park victims and no red tape. Yeah. And I mean, do you think that there is an amount that would have been like fair to offer in this situation or that could have made it better? Honestly, eight to ten thousand dollars yeah. to each person. The majority of the trailers, like mine and others, were sixteen by eighties. Those are big trailers. Most of the prices was thirty five hundred dollars to move. Some of them, you know, are more if you pay the extra to keep your, because it's a big hill to go down, so the trailer drags when you come out of the trailer park. So if you pay extra money, you're looking at at least $4,000 just to move. You also got $1,000 to $1,200 for underpinning you got to replace. You also have to hook water up. You also have to hook electric up. The price that I paid six years ago just for the electric and the water was about $1,200. And you know, nobody thinks about it. all those things. It's not just move a trailer, 3,500 or set up and ready to roll. That's not the way it works. Yeah, I think that's really good insight because, like, I think everyone knows there, you know, when you move into a new apartment, you're going to have to pay a security deposit and first month's <laughs> rent and that kind of stuff. But, like, all of these other things like utilities and moving and storage expenses are, are things that I don't think everyone 
realizes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really helpful to know. Actually, a family with three kids isn't the most (laughs) amount of a family that lived there. I actually knew um, these girls I rode my bike with. Um, See, they have a family of six there. No, because, I mean, there's three girls and then they have their cousin and then their two parents. One of the things that we we've been talking about related to this issue is that if it's not bad enough that you know this is that your house basically and your land got sold out from under you, you know it was with the help of the government. It was with the exactly. help of the more the Moorhead City government and the Rowan County uh, Fiscal Court, and you know they had to vote on this. And, and I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> and that's that: Did anybody uh, in either one of those bodies like talk to you or anybody about no. what it would mean? No letter, no nothing, nada. Mm-hmm. We were not important enough to say, "Hey, wait a minute, what about those sixty some families you're displacing?" There's not just one person or something. There's families, mm-hmm. people who have been there for a long time. Because six years, I mean, that's six years to us. But you see the other people, people who live there for 20, 25 years that they're kicking out. And because you, you expect them to pack up their 25 years of their life. Because we never knew that Joanne Fraley, we didn't know her name or anything. We knew she owned the land. Or, but Tony, we only saw him once. But we've seen him more in this last couple of 45 days. Than in six years. Yeah. Because yeah. he gets paid for a lot of money for not doing anything about it. Well, and I guess kind of one question I would say is, you know, governments have to do things. Some of them are hard. Some of them are easy. Uh, they probably didn't have to do this. But as they were going through the process of somebody bringing them the information and, the, the you know, we want to do this. What would you think have would have been the most appropriate thing for them to do related to you guys? Like, what do you wish they had done with respect to your situation before they had voted on this? To me, you're not affect. It doesn't matter if you're affecting one family, two, ten, or the whole sixty some that they affected here. When you're going to do something, especially this massive, to me, the seller, the buyer the city council, whoever, all those who were involved, someone should have stepped up and said, no, wait a minute. What about the 60 families that we are evicting out of here who are all going to lose their homes? Is somebody going to compensate them? Who's going to compensate them? Yeah, because where's their heart, their soul, their dedication to Rowan County? We were just, we were nothing but a blight. And, you know, that's fine and dandy when you got that kind of money to go looking down your nose at somebody. But that is still somebody's home. I don't care what you live in. Your home is your home. But when you, no one took the initiative to say, Madden should have said, wait a minute, we're evicting all these families so I can buy your property. What are you going to do for your tenants, Miss Fraley? Or, you know, or city council, somebody should have took us in consideration. Well, you know, you'd think, I, I, you know, I don't give people who make real estate deals like that a lot of credit for ever thinking about people. But you no, think that the city government, you think that the people that you elect, you know, the people that you vote on uh, would do exactly. that. Yeah, and that's a real shame. 
Well, one of the things that, I mean, we've already learned so much uh, about what this is like for you guys and a lot of the things that we never would have thought of without talking to you. But, you know, I, I do believe that every level of elected government, whether it's, you know, there in, in Moorhead or whether it's in Frankfurt or whether it's in Washington, D.C., you know, people that live in trailer parks or people that, you know, work for a living and have to work third shift and, you know, maybe have to move their kids out of school to, to do stuff like this, they get ignored. Uh, they're the people who are most often ignored by the government. Uh, and, you know, you've already shared a lot of stuff, but but if, you, if you'd like to share, what, what are some things about your life that you wish people that ran this country and ran this state and ran, you know, your county and your city knew about the way that you live your life? Actually, no, because you see how I had to go virtual. <laughs> um, I don't get to see my friends every single day. Stop laughing. <laughs> so, see, like, I get up early most mornings when she school's does. in. And you see, like, I get to, like, I hear the bus in the mornings. I get to see all those kids just, like, on the bus asleep. Uh, the boring morning before school. Yeah, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Everyday life. You know, city council and them, they are human beings. They're not acting like human beings. They're acting like children. Well, but in reality, they truly are, you know, everyday people. They, they put their pants on just like I do, whether they like it or not. That's just the way it is. But... When you're elected, you're working for us, not us working for you to tell you how to do your damn job. When it comes down to it, each one of those who sat out there and voted unanimously to do this had no scruples, no morals, and no damn heart to think about any damn one of those people in that trailer park. We were human just like them. Yes, they should have took all this in front. Yeah, people make mistakes. They could damn well correct that mistake that they done. And I hope to God after the meeting we had the other night, I hope they went home and at least a couple of them thought about what me and my daughter said to them and our views there. And I hope it eats them every night that they displace people that are just like me and you and everybody else who get up and go to work and trying to make a living. We were proud to live here, but I can tell you, I am ashamed that I live in Moorhead now in Round County. Like I said, I'm 57. In 10 years, you can bet your honey and I will not live in Round County. My girl would be graduated from high school and I will not pay one more damn tax to them. Actually, in 10 years, I'll be no, 21. I don't have to. Yeah. I'll be retirement age, and I will not. All right. Well, you know, you one of the things that you mentioned also is, you know, there's different kind of GoFundMes and, and ways that you can support yeah. out there, and, and some of them might be better than others. But if people want to support you or support the Justice for North Fork movement, what are ways that they can do that? There is the regular petition that we have. The boycott probably is the biggest thing right now because that's to try to keep Madden to back out of the deal. And kind of like support us and come to our rallies. Because his deal has not been signed until all trailers are removed from that trailer park. There is still about five or six families there 
as of right now, and one of them will not be able to move to the middle of June. I think people should say, hey, especially if you live in a trailer park, this could be you next. Mm-hmm. Development is always going on. You people in the trailer parks, you need to support these people because it could be you one day, and you might be asking me yes today, to come and hard. rally and support for you. And by golly, I would. But I would hope that some people would say, wait a minute, that really could be me. I mean, it could be anybody, but especially trailer parks, as many as we got in Moorhead, my God, you would have thought they would have been on a bandwagon a long time ago. But it's like, well, that's just them. That's their business. No, it can happen anywhere, anytime, and especially with these trailer parks in Kentucky. We have to have a movement that protects these people. If they don't want to fight for it, by golly, I will, because I don't want to see nobody ever have to go through this again. This is not right. It's immoral. And for the mayor to sit there and just look at us like we are nothing, enough people get together, you can be voted out just as well as you came in. Well, Sue and Shana, I hope that you keep singing and keep yelling into your bullhorn. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming <laughs> on and, and sharing I'm not your story. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays and you can subscribe to it at 4KY.com slash newsletters. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.